I'm going to try going down below if the sound system will let me. So far, so good? Okay. Um, actually, the announcement about moving back to Beijing is a little premature, Tom. Uh, we're still in process, but... Since we left, we left in... Um, well, Joy left in April. She kind of got run out of town in April, and I, um, I left in, in June. And... Um, uh, we had planned next year to be moving back to Hong Kong, but we found we were grieving so much over leaving the people and the work that we had been doing here. I had began praying a direct prayer, just God, let me go back to Beijing. And uh, as the months have gone on, we feel like maybe this is where the Lord is leading us. So we're hoping, we ask you just to pray with us. We're not, we're not sure that that's going to be the direction yet or not. We have kind of a long passage to look at this morning, John chapter 1, verses 29 to uh, 51. And uh, just so the word of God can be heard this morning, the most important thing is God's word is heard rather than the speaker. So that God's word can be heard, we're going to have it read to us in three different parts this morning by three different people at points through my talk. So um, I'm going to have them come up in turn uh, at uh, various points. But um, among the, uh, those who know me well, I have a reputation for losing things. Uh, I, people throughout Asia are wearing watches now that I once owned. I would sit in restaurants, take off my watch, and leave it there. Uh, this wedding ring is the second or third one that I've owned because I've lost others. Uh, I even lost my car once. I drove up uh, to a place close to our home, and I forgot that I drove there. I walked home, and a couple hours later, I went out to drive somewhere, and uh, I couldn't find my car. I totally forgot that I had driven anywhere, that I'd walked home. And so I was about to call the police when I realized, okay, yeah, it's up at the community center. So if you want to keep something safe, uh, don't give it to me. Uh, in the passage we're, we're going to look at this morning, the word found is a very important word. Um, and uh, I've actually titled this sermon, Finders Keepers. Losers, well, Finders Keepers, not the Losers Weepers part. I actually fit in the second category, uh, the second group. But in this passage, I want us, as we read the passage this morning, look especially for the word found. That appears five times. Now, just if you could put up the first slide. I hope we have them. John, John's Gospel, we're speaking from John's Gospel. John's Gospel begins a little bit differently or quite differently than the other three Gospels. They all end with one final week in Jesus' life. We normally call the Holy Week, capped off by his uh, betrayal, death, and then resurrection. John does the opposite. He doesn't count time, really, in his Gospel, apart from the first part of his Gospel, where he goes the next day, the next day, the next day, three days later. If we add up all those references in his Gospel, it starts with seven days. So after the prologue, he gives us seven days. And so what we're going to look at this morning are days two through five. So just look at this. Uh, uh, day two is John's testimony, that passage. Day three, uh, Andrew visits with Jesus. Next. Then day four, day five, day six. And it's capped off by day seven, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And at that um, miracle, it says the result of that miracle is the disciples put their faith in him. So the purpose of these seven days, Jesus is recruiting and calling his disciples. They begin following him. They're capped off by this climactic miracle on the seventh day. John has a lot of, a lot of, a big deal with sevens. He does a lot with sevens. But capped off with this miracle on the seventh day, the result of that miracle is the disciples put their faith in him. We're going to look at days two to five this morning and look at some of the interactions that Jesus had with his disciples. We'll look at three scenes, and then after those three scenes, we'll look at four points of application. So could we have Deborah, could you come up and read the first scene? 
John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34, and I think we have a slide with that on as well. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I'll just make a few comments about each scene. In this first scene, particularly, the word see is used repeatedly. John says, I, twice, I did not know him, but I saw him. He hadn't known the identity of the Son of God, was simply doing the thing God had asked him to do. So as he's going about the work of baptizing people in the baptism of repentance, he finds the Messiah, the one that he had been looking for. Look for the person upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descend and remain. John saw this person, it's Jesus, and testifies now that Jesus is the Son of God. This term, the Son of God, does not necessarily refer to deity. We often take it as as that. But in the Old Testament, it was actually a royal designation. It meant the king. In Israel's past, the king was referred to God's son, small k, who served under the capital K, king. Now, those kings in the Old Testament were enabled by God's spirit, to lead the people of Israel to victory, but their experience of being governed and empowered by the Spirit was a little bit finicky. The first king of Israel was Saul. And Saul, if you read his story, we see that the Spirit, he kind of has this uh, love-hate relationship with the Spirit. The Spirit descends on him. He does these great exploits. Sometimes he even prophesies. And then the Spirit departs, and an, an evil spirit overtakes him. Uh, his son David even did not have a, a, real confident, uh, a real confidence in the abiding, ongoing presence of the Spirit after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband. He begged God to not take his Holy Spirit from him. So now John, as all of Israel is looking for the king, the true king of Israel, the Messiah, John sees Jesus and the Holy Spirit says to him, or God says to him, I want you to look for one on who the Spirit descends and remains. This person will not have a finicky relationship with the Holy Spirit because he's without sin. Jesus is the only human vessel who could contain God's Holy Spirit simply because he was without sin. So in him, we also do not lose the Holy Spirit even when we sin. We grieve the Holy Spirit. We quench the Holy Spirit in our pride. But in Christ, we do not lose the Holy Spirit. The holiness of Jesus, that which made him fit for the Holy Spirit to remain upon him, is now ours by faith. So that's scene one. Let's look at scene two. Uh, Abby? Okay. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John? You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. In this scene and the next one, we're going to see Jesus calling two sets of disciples. In this first one, Andrew and Peter. In the next scene, he's going to call Philip and Nathaniel. Now, this is John's gospel. It's very interesting because in the other three gospels, Jesus also calls two sets of brothers. Who are they? Andrew and Peter, and then James and John. But in John's own gospel, he omits his own call. I'm going to say a little bit more about that uh, after a little while. Andrew, the brother of Peter, had been John the Baptist's disciple. He approached Jesus after John pointed Jesus to him. Andrew, like many of his countrymen at the time, were looking for the Messiah, the King of the Jews. But his first question to Jesus wasn't quite what we'd expect someone seeking the Messiah. He says, where are you staying? And Jesus' response isn't quite what we'd expect either. He doesn't say just down the road in a mile or two, at Jerusalem Hyatt. He just says, come and see. In John's meaning, there's a deep, in John's gospel, there's often a deeper meaning to simple words and stories. So we have a hunch when Jesus says, come and see, he's inviting Andrew into something more than just come and see where I am staying. It's the 10th hour, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the time in that culture when things are winding down. So Andrew went and he spent the night with Jesus. And we wonder how late Andrew would have kept this rabbi awake asking him the questions he had. However long they chatted and whatever their topic was, it was enough to convince him that Jesus was the Messiah. He goes out and finds his brother Peter and he says, we have found the Messiah. Jesus says nothing in this passage. Peter says nothing in this passage. Jesus simply looks at him and changes his name to Rocky. Okay, scene three. Uh, Jason, chapter one, verses 43, I think, to 51. In these scenes, the word found is used five times, twice by these, these new disciples who tell others, we have found the Messiah. The Greek word found is the word eurisko, which in the indicative perfect tense is pronounced eureka. It's usually the word we associate with the gold miners of California when they found that big vein of gold and they would exclaim, Eureka! They had found the thing that they had spent months and years looking for, the gold cash that would make them rich. And this is the word that both Andrew and Philip say when they find Jesus, Eureka! We have found the Messiah. However, at the beginning of this scene, you have to notice, verse 43, it's Jesus who finds Philip. Jesus seeks out this man and he gives him the invitation. He finds him and he says, follow me. Perhaps Philip was the other disciple with Andrew from the day before who spent the evening with Jesus. We don't know. But however they knew each other, here we see Jesus taking the initiative to call his disciple, Philip. At some point in our lives, we discover who Jesus is. But it's always more correct for us to say, Jesus found me, than it is for us to say, I found Jesus. Philip, in turn, finds Nathaniel, And like Andrew to Peter, he says, Eureka, we found the Messiah. Now, Nathaniel here is not very PC. He doubts Jesus because of his hometown. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
It's like I was in it when I was a kid. I grew up in a small town called Matsqui, which was next to Abbotsford, but neither of which you've ever heard of. But uh, when our high school boys basketball team would travel into the big city of Vancouver, the Vancouver kids would mock us. They would call us a bunch of farmers. Go back to your villages. In their minds, no good basketball player could come out of Abbotsford. So it, it felt particularly good when the Abbotsford teams would beat the Vancouver teams. So like we all have chips on our shoulders towards certain kinds of places and people, Nathaniel doubted Jesus because of his heritage. But his doubts vanished when he met Jesus personally. He believes he because he sees that Jesus knew him first and knew how to read his heart. An Israelite in whom there is no guile, or better translated, in whom there is no BS. He's a straight shooter. He speaks his mind. Jesus knew him. And Nathaniel moves very quickly from his anti-Nazareth bias to, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So those are the three scenes, just very quickly. Now let's just look at four ideas as we apply this part of John's gospel. The central story in the gospel and in life is, is Jesus. So we could say that the Christian life or Christian sanctification is simply about learning that life does not revolve around me, but it revolves around Jesus who holds all things together. If I move from this idea that somehow I'm the center of life to Jesus being the center of everything, then I am becoming more sanctified. So we often get caught up in thinking that life revolves around an upcoming election or my hectic schedule, or the cancer that I'm battling with, or my kids' problems, or this character deficiency. But in these stories of seeking and finding, we return to that simple and most important, and I say most important of all gospel truths, that life is about Jesus, about who he is, and what he wants. So these scenes confront me with the question again, how am I today positioned in relation to him? If we believe the Bible, that's all that matters. It's the heart of the matter, how we relate to Jesus and what he thinks about us. So in this regard, let's think about four things. Number one, so Jesus at the center, discovering Jesus, the repeated phrase, we have found. There is a eureka experience for each of these disciples. We found what we were looking for. The word was used by Andrew, Philip, in that perfect form of the verb to find, eureka. And perhaps, perhaps the perfect form of the verb, verb is, is aptly named here. It's a perfect finding. There's nothing better than to complete their search than finding it in Jesus. These passages confront me to be honest with myself. Have I really found what I'm looking for? We can sit in church for 30 years. I've sat in church all my life mostly. Have we really found what we're looking for in Jesus? It used to be very cool to quote from the U2 lead singer Bono. And so I'm not sure if it's cool or not, but I'm going to do it this morning. Uh, Read some of the lyrics from his song. Uh, Not his song. It was sung by him, but not written by him. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've climbed the highest mountains. I've run through the fields only to be with you. Only to be with you. I've run. I've crawled. I've scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I've kissed honey lips, felt the healing in her fingertips, burning like a fire that's burning inside her. I've spoke with the tongue of angels. I've held the hand of a devil. It was warm in the night. I was cold as a stone. 
But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I believe in the kingdom come. Then all the colors will bleed into one. Bleed into one. But yes, I'm still running. You broke the bonds. You loosed the chains. Carried the cross of my shame. Oh, my shame. You know I believe it. The you in this song is, is Jesus. And Bono is describing his search for Jesus. And he says, he does, I don't find complete satisfaction in nature, in love, spiritual experiences, in social justice, or even in theology. He can't find what he's looking for in any of these things. I believe that very few people have, can say, I have had that eureka experience in life. We think we know what we want, but when we find it that it's just not what we thought it would be, it's not enough to make us say eureka. So the suggestion of the Bible is that only God can satisfy our search. The only true and lasting eureka that can come out of our lips is in response to seeing the Lord Jesus for who he truly is. So Augustine said those famous words, our hearts really are restless until they find their rest in you. G.K. Chesterton said it even more, uh, more graphically when he wrote that a man, when a man goes into a brothel, he's looking for God. Our Eureka experience is this deep and abiding sense that everything pales next to Jesus. This isn't an an emotional moment during worship. It's not a hike in the mountains. It's this deep and abiding Eureka experience in Christ that's penetrated our, our hearts and then holds us captive to Christ. Sometimes I think we confuse talking about Jesus in Bible studies with really, truly finding our life in him. Karl Barth, one of the most influential and controversial theologians of the 20th century, a German who lived during Hitler's time, gathered the confessing church of his day to create and sign the Barman Declaration, declaring their allegiance to Jesus rather than Hitler. He wrote massively, still is one of the most studied theologians today. Near the end of his life, he reflected on all that he did and all that he wrote, and he said it could be summed up in one sentence. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. I think it's similar to that great theologian from the first century, the Apostle Paul, whose goal in life was simply to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes by faith in Jesus. So the question we ask in response to this part of God's word, is Jesus really enough for us? Has your search truly ended in him? Have you really found what you're looking for? Second point. Pointing to Jesus. Come and see. In each of these three scenes, someone points to Jesus. John the Baptist points to the Lamb of God, to anyone who will listen. Andrew points his brother Peter to Jesus. And then Philip points Nathaniel to Jesus. I think there's two responses we can make to finding something very valuable. We can either keep it to ourselves or we can share it with others. Have you noticed that sometimes when people win big in the lottery, they're hesitant to come forward? (laughs) I mean, if my family and friends knew that I suddenly won, came across $50 million, I'd be getting a lot of calls and visits. When those gold miners said Eureka, when they found gold ore in those mines, their Eureka would have have had to have been pretty quiet until they could be sure the gold was theirs. (laughs) 
There was recently a story on Yahoo about a guy who had won $52 million. He knew that he had won. He had even scanned his ticket, but he hadn't yet come forward. <laughs> you got to wonder, was there an ex-wife waiting somewhere in the wings? He didn't want to share this eureka moment with the world. What would you do if you won $50 million? For those who found the Messiah, who said eureka to Jesus, their first response was simply to share this news with others. Church, I think the greatest reason we fear evangelism is not because we don't know enough stuff. I think it's because we really lack this eureka experience with Jesus. We don't think he's really enough. So we think we have to pass on a set of ideas, our, th- our theology, and convince other people. But actually the greatest motivation for evangelism, and I think the only good motivation for evangelism, is to share with people the person that we have met. Gracious, kind, powerful, healing, accepting, embracing, justifying. Sometimes the problem with evangelism that we over-theologize. We try to pass on a set of ideas called Christianity, and we argue people into the kingdom. So to quote Bart again, Bart said this, Wonderful little one-liner. The word became flesh, and then theologians changed them back into words again. I don't, I don't want to condemn us with questions of evangelism. How many people have you brought to church? Who have you shared the gospel with lately? Who have you led, Christ to, led to Christ lately? The only real question is the one that we've already asked ourselves. Have we found what we're looking for? Have you really said in response to Jesus, Eureka, he's enough? Third point from these uh, passages, being known by Jesus. The words, I saw you. In these interactions with the disciples, Jesus reveals things about two of them. First, he looked at Simon and declared that his name should be changed to Cephas, Aramaic, or Peter, Greek, which means in English, Rocky, the rock. They'd never met before. But just with this initial and penetrating look, he saw Peter for who he was and who he would be. It was the same when he saw Nathaniel. He looked at him and he said, you are an Israelite without any guile. He knew them at first glance. I think we're all a mystery to each other. I am a mystery to myself. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, I don't understand what I do, the things I do. I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I do want to do. I'm just so messed up. I don't even understand myself. So when I submit my wife and my kids to my personal psychology, I only prove my pride. How could I truly understand the inner workings of another person when I don't even really understand myself? But it's through these stories we receive insight into Jesus that he knows us fully No one else knows us completely, not even ourselves. Paul reflected on this truth in that great chapter on love in 1 Corinthians 13. The church that was most messed up in the New Testament, had the most infighting, is where we find this great chapter on what love is, this great definition of love. That's what they needed most. At the end of describing what love is really like, he said these words. He said, one day we will know fully, we will understand fully. One day we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. In the context of this chapter on love, I think what he means is that Jesus knows us fully and yet loves us perfectly. 
I dare anybody to stand up here and utter your darkest thoughts, your anger, your criticisms, your petty jealousies, your love of money, your secret vices. We wouldn't do that. We bring our best, we put our best foot forward in church. Now, we should be more open, probably, than we really are in the family of God. But can you even stand up in church and let the people know, which should be the safest place in the world, and let people know who you really are? It's hard for us. Because our love is so imperfect, so fleeting, so finicky. But Jesus, who sees us fully, loves us completely. In those other three Gospels, where John and James were the second two disciples called, remember, here in John, he doesn't include his call. In fact, he never mentions his name in the Gospel of John, but he refers to himself, the author of this Gospel, repeatedly throughout. Do you remember how he refers to himself? The disciple who Jesus loved. The disciple who Jesus loved. Now, he was a, th- a son of thunder. He was a pretty strong guy. He was vocal. He was, uh, uh, he was a good leader. But his identity, his conscious identity as a follower of Jesus is the disciple who Jesus loved. And that's enough for him. I don't think he meant Jesus didn't particularly care for the others. I think he means that who I am is one who is loved by Jesus. So however you see yourself today and however you feel about yourself today, whether you're regretful about yourself or you feel pretty smug, you're disappointed in yourself or you're pretty pleased with yourself, it's not nearly as important as how Jesus sees you. He sees the disciple for who they are. His gaze penetrates our soul. Fourth and finally, confessing Jesus. There's two major confessions of Jesus in these initial interactions. There's one that comes from the mouth of John the Baptist that describes the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And there's one that comes near the end from Nathaniel who describes his lordship, the Son of God, the King of Israel. These are the two chief things we always and eternally will say about Jesus. He's the lamb who was slain, and he's the lion who reigns. He's both Savior and Lord. So back to the title of this sermon, Finders Keepers. This passage is about people finding the Messiah. But more importantly, it's about the Messiah finding people. In another gospel, Luke chapter 15, three things were found. One out of a hundred sheep one out of ten coins, and then one out of two sons. And in each case, the finder is so excited about finding the thing that was lost. And in that chapter, Luke 15, the finder is a metaphor for God in all three cases, who's so excited about finding lost ones who had been straying that he throws a party. We must rejoice, he said to the the elder brother, The father said to the elder brother at the end of Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son, because your brother, he was dead, is now alive, he was lost, and now he's found. And here's the thing about Jesus. When Jesus finds someone he loves, he doesn't lose it again. He never loses it again. Last week when I was in in southern China in Xiamen, I had a sweater just like this, and um, I lost it three times in one day. 
I was at church and then I left it there and somebody chased after me when I was checking out of my hotel and they brought it to me and then I was saying goodbye to people at the hotel. I set it down, left it there. That same person brought it to me. I got into a van, went to another place, got out of the van and left it in the van for good. So it's donated now to somebody in southern China. But when Jesus finds something, he doesn't lose it. Jesus has nothing he's lost. And this term, finders, keepers, I think is best applied to him. Because he holds the things he, the thing he finds in the clutch of his love. Not with greed, but in the clutch of his love. Near the end of John's gospel, John chapter 17. So what we've been looking at is the beginning, the call of these disciples. And near the end, the, night, the very last day of his life, he prays to the Father, John 17. And he says those words, I guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. John seventeen twelve. I guarded them and not one of them had been lost. These were the disciples that were about to betray him. And all were about to desert him. But even though they tried running away from him, they're still firmly within his grasp. We kick and scream and we try to run away from Jesus, but we can't do it. He found us. Don't worry about your losing your, your salvation. Jesus is holding on to you. What I'd like to do in closing this morning is I'd like to close with, um, with prayer together. And if you wouldn't mind, you could stand. And uh, Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline, uh, teaches a form of prayer called uh, uh, Palms Up and Palms Down. So we're going to start with palms down, then we're going to go to palms up. And the palms down prayer is laying the things down before Jesus that we need to lay down. The palms up form of prayer is to accept from Jesus what uh, we need to accept. So if you would mind, you can close your eyes. It's probably easier for you to do it this way. Put your palms down. These are two forms of prayer in light of our confession of who Jesus is. So in, in putting our palms down, We confess the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the the world. And now we pray in the name of our Savior with our palms down. And before you today, our Lord Jesus, we release our sins that so easily entangle us. We release before you the regrets that we've had about ourselves. We release before you the fears that we have about our inability and fears of the future. We release before you our disappointments in ourselves and in other people. We thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in you we are completely whole and completely safe. Thank you for being our Savior and rescuing us from everything that could harm us. As we turn our hands over and put our palms up, we now want to pray in the name of Jesus our Lord, the King of Israel. And Lord Jesus, we accept from you our lot in life. We accept who, you, who we are. 
our personalities, our bodies. And we accept the challenges that are before us, things that we would like to run from. But because we believe you are Lord, the King, and that all things revolve around you, that you will somehow use the challenges that we're experiencing to work together for good to those of us who love you. We accept our circumstances as coming from your hand. And we give up trying to change things that you don't want us to change. We accept the calling that you have on our lives. Sometimes we have to walk through fire. Sometimes it seems rather dull to us. And we would like more excitement. But we accept from you what you have called us to be and to do. So as your people today, we acknowledge that life does not revolve around us, but it revolves around you. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would bless each one with a true Eureka experience. The true satisfaction of every search to be found in you. And through that we would be able to bless the world with the knowledge of how great you really are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you know us fully. You love us unconditionally and entirely and eternally. We pray in your name. Amen.